All right, today we're going to call this one amazing, and we're just going to talk about me. So maybe you wouldn't call that amazing, right? A short sermon. Who said that? It's going to be in Acts 17, um, middle of the chapter to the end. We are coming in probably in the next uh, couple months on finishing up the book of Acts, and then we'll go into a series on the attributes of God. Um, but this last part is, is pretty, pretty exciting, I think. Um, let's approach it a little differently. No story to start out with, no clever, uh, clever gimmick. Let's just go into the text, and then I want to unpack for you from the text three things that struck me this week. So I'm in Acts 17. It starts out in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them. And of course, I'll stop there and explain, right? So remember, Paul had just um, been to Berea after leaving Thessalonica. He um, left Berea because the Thessalonians came and they were, they were after him. He left Silas and Timothy behind. He went to Athens and they were going to catch up with him. He sent a, a message to have them come. And then it starts, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives, all, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. All right, everybody got that? We good? Three things struck me this week as I was looking at that. The first two, um, the third I was most excited about, but it's set up by the first two. So check this out. How did Athens affect Paul? Understand what Athens was at the time. Athens was the leading city of the world. It was the center of 
of arts and science and philosophy and architecture, everything came to a culmination in Athens. It was the greatest city, some argue, that the world has ever known. It was also the crossroads of the world. It's where the major thoroughfares of commerce came through. So it was, it was the, the hub of everything important. Paul arrives in Athens for the very first time in his life. And what was the first thing Paul noticed about Athens? How did Athens affect Paul? Did he look at the, the buildings and just go, whoa? Did he look at the universities and go, wow? Did, did, he, did he go in and watch the performers? What, what struck him first? Did he become a wide-eyed tourist? No, it says right here, his spirit was provoked, and he saw that the city was full of idols. That's a little bit crazy if you stop and think about it. Imagine for the first time in your life you take a, a trip to a city that you're dying to see. Imagine that, that you go to Rome or, or Venice or, or Madrid or London. Pick, pick your city. And you arrive and, and the smells and the sights and the sounds and the people and, and the architecture and everything going on is going to catch your eye, right? People spend a lot of money to go to cities for the first time, don't they? But the first thing that caught Paul's eye was that the city was full of idols. What, well, start here. Was God impressed with Athens as a city? I mean, did God, did God sit there and go, wow, that is an awesome, awesome building. Good job. Or, man, you know, Socrates, Plato, those guys came through Athens. These are smart guys. Wow, this is amazing philosophical teaching these guys are putting out. Let, let me sit and listen, Socrates. Go ahead and teach. This is impressive. Did he watch the performances and go, uh, amazing. Look at what these people can do. Look at the plays they're Look at the wisdom they have. Really, was, was God impressed with, with the accoutrements of Athens? Not so much. But was Athens important to God? Did God care about Athens? Oh, immensely. Because each... And every person in Athens mattered to God. Well, what happened with Paul was, rather than have a normal human impression of a city, somehow he had a bit more of a godly perspective. He, he saw not the, the, if you will, the superficial skin of the world. He saw what really mattered to God. It's not that there's anything wrong with the accoutrements. There, there's, there's pleasure to be found in architecture and, and teaching and performing and science and, and all those things, but there's a place and priorities for the stuff and what really matters. See, Paul saw people who were lost, and he knew they were lost because of the number of idols that, that flourished in the city. It's said in, a, in history and from antiquity that for every person in Athens, there was probably an altar to a different god, not literally, but figuratively. Um, it's interesting, as you study Athens, the similarities to modern-day America are pretty, pretty frightening, if you will. Um, the wealth, the, the knowledge base, the, the abilities of, of science, uh, universities, uh, the crossroads of the world. Some of our large metropolitan centers in America are not too dissimilar to Athens, also when it comes to religious thinking. Think of the the different gods that people in our culture worship. They don't usually have altars on a mountaintop. They usually reside in their back pocket, uh, live in their homes with them, um, are located in buildings. What, what drives why you do what you do is what you worship. Well, Paul got a bit of a 
godly perspective. Well, how about you? Let me ask you this question. I asked myself this question. How does your city, how does where you live affect you? Do you notice the, the superficial skin of this world and, and become focused on that? Or do you see behind the skin and see perhaps what God sees is more important? Meaning, when you go out, Patty, you talked about Wegmans last Sunday, right? When you go out, imagine you go to New York City. When you arrive, what's the first thing that strikes you? Is it the number of people, the stuff, the sights, the sounds, or is it the mass of humanity that doesn't believe in Jesus? You know, this past week on uh, the Days Blur Together, on Monday to Friday, somewhere in there, was Rosh Hashanah, I think it was Thursday, Jewish New Year. Well, all of the friends and family members I have that are Jewish, they stay home from work. It's kind of depressing to me a little bit. You know why? Because they don't, they don't believe what Paul says is true. See what I mean? The first thing that I notice is what? Is, I don't know. Is it the, dis, the, the discourage, not discouragement, is it the, the sadness that comes from knowing the people I care most deeply about in this world after you guys, that I care most deeply about, don't believe in God? Or is it just the superficiality of, oh, they took a day off from work so we can FaceTime them and see them on video phone? Or, do you know what I mean? It's easy. Well, my point is this. Me, I assume you two have become mesmerized by the culture. We all have, whether or not we believe it. How do you, here's the, here's the test. Anybody have a TV in their house that they watch? If you can, well, I do. If you can watch television without being repulsed, you become mesmerized, mesmerized by culture. Why do I say that? Look at what is on TV. Is it appealing or appalling to God? How do we consume it so frivolously and enjoy it so much? I do. How? Anybody here rent a movie recently or go to a movie? Do you, do you think the majority of the, uh, the top tier stuff, Jesus, would be like, hey, can I come by and watch that with you? Fight Club! It's a favorite movie of mine. Oh, Matrix, I love but yet, we've grown, we've grown uh, tolerant of it because we celebrate it and enjoy it because we become conformed to the culture little by little. Some more so than others. But there's a streak in us of, of worldliness, what the Bible would call worldliness. Go a little deeper, the old time, talent, and treasure. What drives how you use that? The culture or the creator? Do you use your time? Do you spend your talent and your treasure in a way that would honor God because it's how he commands us? Or do you do what the world tells you to do with it? Something to think about. It, because we're all affected and mesmerized, if you will, by the superficial skin of the culture. So how did Paul avoid this? Well, Romans 12, too, right? Hey, Paul penned that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul, Colossians 3. Hey, he wrote that too. Let the word of Christ dwell in him richly. See, Paul didn't know about God. Paul knew God. Paul trusted and obeyed God. As a result, Paul grew in his relationship with God. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Colossians, here, let's flip there for a minute. Colossians 3. Talks about the old self and the new self. Taking off and putting on. So, 
Paul gives us a list of things to take off. Sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, and a candidate's the wrath of God is coming. He tells us to take those off. And he tells us to put on and gives us a list of things to put on. Um, put on is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these, put on love. So there's a lot of taking off, putting on. This is not a to-do list, is it? It's not a to-do list to be right with God. Paul knew that when he walked into Athens. He's not saying, dudes, you're worshiping false gods, so you need to come to church. You need to give your money. You need to ignore the thing falling out of my pocket. You need to do all the do's and don't do all the don'ts. And if you do a good enough job, you'll be in a right relationship with God, and then he'll be pleased with you. That's not what Paul's saying at all, is it? But what happened with Paul and what God commands us as believers is this. Here's what I find appalling. Here's what I find appealing. And as you grow to know me better, not about me, but know me, you will find appealing what I find appealing in greater measure and appalling what I find appalling in greater measure. And that happens when you put off and you put on, when you trust and you obey. So, for example, it doesn't mean when God commands us to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, a.k.a. contemporary English, read the Bible. It doesn't mean like once a month you try it out and you're like, ah, nah, it's just not doing it for me today. I'll try again in a month. Nah, just not. No, it means you do it. And little by little, as you do it, you come to enjoy it because you know what it is. You know that it's God speaking to you. When God tells you to forgive, you're like, I don't feel like forgiving. It's not about how you feel. It's about doing what he says. Because as you do what he says, you grow closer to him. And you begin to find appealing what God finds appealing and appalling what God finds appalling. You don't do it to be right with him. You do it because you are right with him. And I'll explain the importance of that in a minute. But God trusts God. Paul trusted and obeyed God. He matured in his faith. And he truly loved people, so when he looked at Athens, he didn't see the stuff. He saw the people that were dearly loved by God. In fact, loved so much that God sent his only son. Remember that old, that old chapter verse, 316? God loved the people of Athens. He loved them so much that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So Paul wasn't affected by Athens. Paul affected Athens. Paul didn't just sit there and complain. That's the old modern uh, American Christian practice. Oh, you've seen those movies these kids are watching nowadays. Shame on them. And you're like, how do you know? Well, I watch to keep abreast on what the culture is doing. Oh, those clubs some of these gentlemen go into. Oh, my word. Can you believe that? I went to check it out every Friday for about four months. Could, oh, yeah, that's called hypocrisy. Paul didn't just sit there and go, oh, the city is full of idols. Oh, shame, shame, shame. That's what most of us would do in American church. But it says that Paul acted on this. His spirit was provoked from within, so he went out, and he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout people. So he went to the synagogues, as was his practice. Then he went to the marketplace, check this out, every day, and he spoke with those who happened to be there. How about them green apples? So he went out into the center of the, the area, the, the agora, the marketplace, and whoever happened to come by, he'd say something like, hey, do you mind if I ask you a question or two? Oh, why not? What's your question? Tell me about uh, your relationship with God. What do you mean? Now, you and I, that, we don't do that much because that'd be kind of freaky, right? But Paul was out and about. Why was he out and about? Because he knew something I'm going to show you in a minute. Hopefully I'll remind you of. Um, but if not, show you for the first time. 
He knew the reality. He knew the reality of the He wasn't there saying, hey, let me tell you about the idol I worship. He's saying, let me tell you about the truth and this God that I know and how much he loves you. So he goes out, and as he's out, he runs into these two groups. He's these Epicurean and these Stoic philosophers. Who are the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? Well, we have them today. It's a, major, it's a majority of highly educated American people, tell you the truth. Epicureans would be relativists and deists. What does that mean? They believed there was a god or gods who lived at a distance, and they were, they were, they were powerful but, but removed, per se. Kind of like God made everything, but God wasn't intimately involved with everything. They, um, the, the Stoics, a little more rare, but they're out there. They're pantheists. God is everything. The people, you know, the energy. I, I feel your energy. Yeah. I would like, I could use some of that. If you know how to transfer energy to boost me up a little bit, you know, wake me up. They, they feel the energy. God is, God is everything, and everything is God. And every once in a while, the world just kind of collapses and starts over again and recycles. Okay? That's what 99% of people believe out there in our culture. Uh, highly educated, intelligent people. That's what the Epicureans and the Stoics were. So Paul goes to them and they say, hey, let's listen to this. What's this guy saying, this babbler, literally, seed picker? They felt that Paul was taking different kernels from different philosophical views and presenting them. And they said, hey, why don't you come with us to the Areopagus, a.k.a. Mars Hill? It was a, a place where judges sat to approve what could be taught. In Athens. They said, come here, seed picker, come with us and present your case to the, to the judges, and let's see if, if you're allowed to say it. So Paul goes, so how did he end up in this position just by walking in obedience, speaking the truth in love, and, and these, um, the minds of the time, the leading minds of the time said, come on, let's see, if, let's see if you can talk this stuff in the marketplace. Let's make sure this is okay. So they bring him to the Areopagus. When he gets to the Areopagus, he does something cool that I'll show you in a minute. But notice this, very basic question. Athens affected Paul by his spirit provoking him with the lostness of the city. Paul affected Athens, and you'll see in a minute the effect that he had. How did he affect Athens? Speaking the truth in love. Sharing the gospel. How do you affect your city? That's an interesting question to chew on. Does your city affect you more than you affect your city? And how do you affect your city? We're going to talk about this a lot during Bible study because this is one of the hardest things in the world. How do you lovingly find an opportunity to share the gospel so that people understand you're not trying to ram something down their throat to make them believe what you believe, but so that they can hopefully come to know the God who is who loves them more than they can ever comprehend? See what I'm saying there? That's all Paul was doing to affect Athens, and he had an effect. Some came to believe, some came to... Um, become angry, and some went indifferent, wishy-washy in the middle, but he was affecting the city. Now, this is what really, what I really got excited about this week. Paul shows up, and he gives a bit of a mini-theology in verse 24 to 27. God made the world. He's the Lord of the heaven and the earth. He gives all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind, right? So, he's saying, y'all are very religious people. He's not using that term as an insult. He's saying, I see you're thinking, folks. I, I see that you know there is a God. Romans 1. You know? All people know there is a God. They just don't know who God is. That's what the Bible tells us. So if you ever meet an atheist, I don't believe in God. You know what you say to him? You're a lying dog. Go home and think about that. You're lying to me. You know that there's God. You're just trying to suppress the truth. Don't, you don't ever have to have a, a, a um, 
philosophical argument with an atheist because they're lying to you. Agnostic, a little more credit. I, I'm not sure if there is a God. Well, we can talk. If you tell me you, you don't believe there's a God and you know there's not, get out of here because you're lying to yourself. Or the word of God is not true. I've never met an atheist who stands on that. Get them get into trouble, they start praying. So he knows it, that they're religious people. He uses this altar to an unknown God as a starting conversation start. I see that you're worshiping an unknown God. Let me reveal to you who this unknown God is. You have an abundance of altars. But you know you don't have them with certainty because you still got this unknown one. We got them all over the place, but just in case we're missing it, because you all know you're probably a little bit off, you got this safety catch altar in case this other God shows up that you didn't recognize. Let me tell you about him. See, he made everything. He's in control of everything. He sustains everything. And he loves you. Notice how he transitions this. It doesn't say it right there like that, but look at what he says. He is actually not far from each one of you. What's he mean? Who is the person, Renee, I'll ask you this question. Who is the person in this world that you're closest to? In this world? In this world. I, I, I want to say a lot of different people, like this world? Well, I'll save you the grief here. Why didn't you just say uh, Diane? She's, she's three inches to your right. Okay. So when I ask her, she's too smart is why. When I ask who she's closest to, why didn't she say Diane? Because she knows it's not what I mean. She's thinking of relationally who she's closest to, yeah. right? What's that say right there? Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Well, God is omnipresent. means he's everywhere. The Bible says it all over the place. Well, not all over the place, but in many places. This is a pastor's trick. If you guys ever want to use this, check this out. 1 Kings 8, 27, Jeremiah 23, 23, Acts 17, 27, 28, Psalm 139, 7 through 10. See, I go that fast, you can't check. But it's recorded, so hold on. 1 Kings 8, 27, Jeremiah 23, 23, Acts 17 right here, 27 to 28, Psalm 139, 7 to 10, and on and on and on and on. The Bible makes very clear that God is everywhere. When I was a kid growing up in Hebrew school, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. Up, up, sing along, down, down, right, left and all around, here, there. We knew that God was everywhere. So when Paul says he's actually not far from each one of you, he's not talking about physical proximity, is he? You ever feel like God is far? We'll talk about that in about a second here. Paul says, hey guys, this unknown God that you don't know that you think is very, very far away, removed from creation, uninvolved, he's not. He is, in fact, very close. And that's not good news in and of itself. Because one day he's going to judge the entire world. So the fact that there is a God and you could know who he is isn't good news. And he's going to judge the world. That's actually bad news. See, I don't want people just to believe in God because that's not good news. You believe he's real? Great. What's the good news in that? The good news comes from knowing that he's overlooked the times of ignorance and commands all people everywhere to repent. God's saying, look, you and I are inseparably distant relationally. In fact, you're the furthest person in the world from me, you and everybody else, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't have a relationship with me. Nothing you can do about that. But God sent his only son 
fully man and fully God, to be the perfect sacrifice once and for all. Man, because he had to be a man to pay the penalty due man, and God, because only God could, could forgive sin, right? So he came and he forgave the sin, and why? Because God desired to have a relationship with everyone, and all they have to do is believe. Believe means trust and obey. Paul says, guys, I have really good news. This unknown God, let me reveal him to you. He's a God who created everything. And he sent his very own son to die for you, and he proved it was him by rising from the dead. We have signs and wonders galore throughout the Bible. Okay? Our faith is assurance and certainty. It's not wishy-washy hope. It's based on examination, or at least it should be. And the good news is that this distance is closed, not physically, but relationally. Do you see that? What's eternal life? You know, well, we're going to call people to eternal life. Someone says, what's that? Oh, shoot, I don't know, man. But do you want it? Oh, yeah, sure. Right? What's eternal life? John 17, 3. Remember we did that about a year ago? We went through the Gospel of John. What are you guys? You're killing me. You don't remember everything I say on the top of your head? Thanks, Dan. You can come back next week. <laughs> Everybody else, please. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That you know God. Paraphrasing that last part. The Father and Jesus. That you know, not about, that you know God. That's a radical concept. Not just that God revealed himself to be known about, but that God made a way so you could live relationally with him. People say, you know, how, isn't that kind of arrogant to say that you know God? Well, I don't know. Is that arrogant if you actually know him? No. But see, too many people know about him. They don't really know him. Paul knew him. And Paul knew him so well that what appealed to God appealed to Paul, and what appealed to God more than anything was to have people live in an eternal relationship with him from the very moment for all eternity, and you can't lose that relationship. You don't have to do anything to be right in that relationship. It's secure eternally. But you do what's right because you understand the, the abounding awesomeness, if that's a usable phrase, of grace. It's not deserved. The prodigal son, right? You, you took your inheritance. You wasted it. You spat in God's face. You wished he was dead. And yet he still says, welcome back. I made a way for you to be forgiven. It makes no sense from a human perspective. And then it just gets better. Remember the prodigal? He ringed him, he robed him, and he shooed him. He gave him the signet ring. He gave, he gave him all, all of the access to all of his wealth. He put a robe on him saying, this, this, this is an heir. This, this is a prince. This is a, this is a king's kid. This is an important cat. And he shooed him. Servants don't wear shoes. Only the master's kids wear the shoes. From the pig pit to the pinnacle. Not because he deserved it. In fact, he didn't deserve it at all. Well, Paul shows into Athens and says, look, as you're whoring around spiritually, you hate God deep down. You wish he were dead, but he loves you so much that he's overlooked these times of ignorance. He's overlooked your past sin and offered a way for you to be forgiven. Now, at the beginning, remember I said this, corporate worship is meant to produce sadness in the face of sin and celebration because of the glory of receiving grace. Well, Paul knew that. And the reason God commands us to get together regularly is so we can be reminded of the sadness that we once had and the joy that we now have through grace because, let's be honest, we easily forget that. How do you know? Because you do what I do. I, I forget. 
I, I mean, on an intellectual level, I remember. It's not like Tuesday. I'm like, oh, shoot, what is this whole gospel thing? I know it in my head. It just kind of gets overwhelmed in the heart because the world has an attractiveness to it. My mind has a forgetfulness to it. And yes, I still, in areas just like you, struggle with sin. Too often we present the gospel as you dirty, rotten, good for nothing sinner, turn or burn. You missed the whole stinking thing. You and me, the only difference is grace. But God's still offering grace to anyone who would believe. You want to know why you don't share your faith very often? You want to know why you get concerned? Think about, think about what you're saying to people. You're saying there is a God who can be known with absolute certainty. And you're in a wrong relationship with him because you've sinned. But, God's beautiful but, right? But God so loved the world that he offers forgiveness to all who would believe. That's crazy good news. So why do we hold back with that? Well, because God seems distant. Don't we all feel that way at times? Take Patty's, uh, you don't call them secretaries anymore, right? What are they? Assistants, yeah. Her assistant. You go through enough circumstances like that. God, you know what? You're not really as good as you say you are. I mean, the girl's mom died. Before her stinking wedding, if God was good, he would have done it a week later, right? If God's good, Pam wouldn't be struggling like this, because if God can heal her, why wouldn't he heal her? Right? So, so God, why are you so quiet? Why are you so distant? Maybe you don't love us. And you see, little by little, that wears on you. Well, stop it. Stop it. Don't see God through the circumstances. See the circumstances through God. Why does God allow Pam to go through this? I don't know, but he does. And I promise you that when we get to the other side, we're not going to say, oh, God, you screwed that sucker up. Anybody ever been through hardships in their life? Not here. Have you ever gotten a glimpse of something good coming out of them? Sometimes it takes a long, long time. But have you ever gotten a glimpse of something good coming out? And you're like, oh, my gosh, God, you actually do know what you're doing. You do know what you're allowing. But you've got to know God for who he truly is and not see him through the circumstances. It can't be, if God loved me, he wouldn't. It has to be, God loves me, why did he? Go that way. I don't know why Caitlin's mom died, but God does, and he's fully in control. Don't try to take God off the hook. He's fully in control, and he allowed it. I don't know why, but I know he's loving. And I know that God wouldn't harm Caitlin because his desire is to live in an eternal relationship with her and to give her a future and a hope, we're told in Jeremiah. People have been, in this church, we all know people who have gotten a raw deal, right? People who have been screwed over, theologically speaking, from other people, right? People who have faced hard deals they're going through, right? Is God out of control? Has God lost it? Is he weak? No. But we can rejoice knowing that God knows what he's doing. Remember those disciples who lived with Jesus? Well, what do you mean you're going to die? What do you mean you're going to be? You're going to die? That doesn't make sense. You're not going to die. Well, all of a sudden, Jesus is being beaten. Like, oh, come on, man. Get up. Get up. He's on the cross. He's dead. What, what the heck happened? God, what are you doing? What did you do this? What are we going to do? We invested everything in him. Ah! Well, it turns out God knew what he was doing, didn't he? Didn't he? If God would do that, do you think that he's going ah, screw you, Caitlin. Ah, screw you, Pam. No. He knows what he's doing. We don't. But we can know him. See, what happens is we allow the circumstances of life to distract us. We become conformed to the world. We fail to trust and obey. And God grows distant, not physically, relationally. We have a differentiation of moral character. 
You cannot consume the, hmm, I was about to use a word that I don't think comes out in too many sermons, junk of this world. It wasn't that one, it was the lesser version. You cannot consume the junk of this world and expect not to be affected by it. You can't just feast on the junk of this world, ignore what God calls us to feast on, and expect to have an intimate relationship with him. It won't happen. But if you feast on what God calls you to feast on, you will know God as God desires for you to know him, and you will be unable to help but go out and trust and obey and proclaim. There are a lot of distractions in this life. Some of them start at 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock on Sunday. Go Packers. Um, and we easily become distracted by what's most important from what's far less important. 8 o'clock, Giants. Um, you should be reading your Bible. You can love God and watch football, but you've got to prioritize it right. You can love God and do anything that you want. You want to know the good news about heaven? When you get to heaven, you do anything you want. Whenever you want, however you want, period. No questions asked. You know why? Because when you get to heaven, you're only going to want to do what God would want you to do. God is distant not because he moved. God is distant because we're not trusting and obeying as he calls us to. I don't want to gimmick anybody into the kingdom of God. You know why? That doesn't do any good. I don't want to make Jesus fun. Fun is way too inconsequential for what he desires for us. Abundant life. I don't want anyone to, to like church. I want them to love Jesus and enjoy gathering together to worship him and praise him for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Now, we can have fun along the way. We can do all sorts of great stuff, and, and, and people could. We should laugh. We should have a lot of fun together. We should have a lot more fun than anybody else in this world because we know whose we are and where we're going. We should have a joy even in sadness but how easily we get distracted. So how do you fix it? You rope it up. What does that mean? I don't know. Repent. You ever notice the Bible calls believers to repent? Why? So you can be re-forgiven? No. So that distancing of relationship gets closed. We repent for the intimacy of relationship once you have an eternal relationship. You with me Repent. Obey. Why do you obey? To be right with God? No, if you're already right with God, the obedience has nothing to do with it. But if you're... There. See, there's a gift of tongues where I just stammered. If you are right with God, you will obey. You will be unable to help obeying in greater measure. Proclaim. If you really understand what you have in Christ, you can't help but tell people what they can have in Christ. Old Alistair Begg, 2000, in the year 2000, said uh, on that radio, if y'all, I, I wish I could do a Scottish accent. If you're not sharing your faith, you probably don't have a faith to share. He really made me angry because I didn't want to share my faith. It was uncomfortable, awkward, created tension, and I get it. Now, he's not saying if you're not sharing your faith, you're not really a believer. But if you can go decades and decades and decades and never try to tell anyone how much God loves them, you may not have actually been wowed by grace. That's like someone having the cure for cancer, but never goes to Sloan Kettering to let them know what they have and start handing it out. You either are sick in your head or you don't know what you got in your hand. You see that? As believers, we need to understand 
the sadness that comes from recognizing sin and the joy that comes from understanding grace. And little by little, as we walk in greater obedience and understand the reality of the presence of God and that we live in a relationship with him, we can't help but go out and call people to him. That's what he commands us to do. Now, how? That's hard. I give you that. A lot of us don't share our faith because we don't know how. We live in a culture that doesn't do it. The, the trick is uh, you gimmick them in. You make it fun. You make it exciting. You, it's not that hard. We're going to spend some time in this fall going through, and I'll show you just how frighteningly easy it is because you and I can't make anyone believe. But we just go out, basically playing, you know, we're playing a game of uh, hide and seek. Going to look for Jesus' lost sheep. Yeah? If they bleat, yeah, he found them, he brought it. You see what I'm saying there? It, it's incredibly easy. But Paul knew how it was done. It was done by affecting your city through proclaiming the good news. What's the good news? The old song of amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Right? It's recognizing that you lived in the filth and the muck and the mire and you were completely unacceptable to God. But God. You, you can't even wrap your mind. I, I can't. How do you wrap your mind around what you are in sin before God? And why would God say, you're forgiven? Why? How often do we look at people and try to categorize them? Oh, that person deserves forgiveness because they feel bad and what they did wasn't so bad so I can forgive them. But this person, oh, no way, Jose, period. They don't deserve forgiveness. That's too much. Now, blow it out infinitely and you get a glimpse of human separation from God. Right? God gave us the Ten Commandments. Go through those real quickly. You start to see, oh, now, now, now wait a minute. You see, God, I, I didn't really understand, so it's no big deal, right, this whole spiritual adultery. Try, try going home to your spouse. Well, honey, I didn't understand what the word adultery meant, so I've, I've been sleeping with dozens and dozens of people, but you forgive me, right, because I didn't understand. That doesn't go over so well, I, I assume. I, I hope to never find out, but I assume that very few wives be like, oh, honey, no big deal. I forgive you, right? Or you, you embezzle money from your boss, millions and millions of dollars, and the company goes bankrupt. And what was that guy's, Bernie? Uh, what if he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I'm really sorry. Will you all forgive me? No. God, no. What kind of stupid request is that? Well, blow it out infinitely. God, I'm sorry. I've been whoring around. I've been stealing what's yours and using it for me and lying about you and telling people false things about you and not doing what you call me to do and just spitting in your face and wishing you were dead. I'm sorry, can I come into heaven because I tried really, really hard? You know, oh, yeah, sure, come on in. Not. You don't deserve it. But then why would God die for his enemies? Why would God die in the place of wicked, nasty, rotten, literally good-for-nothing people? That's love. You know what I'm saying here? That makes no sense. That's called grace and mercy. It's completely undeserved and unmerited. The more we understand that, the more you desire to go out and say to people, look, I could show you on an intellectual level that there is a God and who God is, but that's not going to save you. I can show you based on God's law that you're separated from him, but that's not going to save you. We're just playing facts at this point. I need God himself to convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. How? Here's God's commands. Here's where you fall short. You recognize you can't bridge that gap, but God... 
wants to live, and I think this concept's foreign to most people, and we struggle with it even. God doesn't call us to believe in him in the sense of check off the truths and the false. God is strong or weak? Strong. Ding, ding, correct. God is powerful? Ding, ding, check. You know, not what this is about. Jesus is the son of God, true or false? Uh, true. Yes, you're in. Welcome to heaven. No. Faith is nothing less than facts, but it's not just an assent to the fact. It's trust and obey. It's kind of like walk up to the cliff. God says jump. Do you jump or do you stand? James tells us even, even the, the demons believe in the facts. You know, the, the thing is, when you jump, you, want, you know what you find? It wasn't that big of a fall. In fact, you didn't even crash. Charlie. Sometimes we play games with Charlie in our house, and we'll throw him around places, you know. Charlie's perfectly secure, but we chuck him onto the bed. I, why am I saying we, me, myself, and I? Well, I guess the kids try sometimes until I stop them. We chuck him onto the bed, and he flies through the air. Ah! And he's laughing his head off. That should be frightening. But Charlie knows I love him. Charlie knows that I'm not going to hurt him as long as I can help it and I'm paying attention. But see, I'm not perfect. Life with God is about flying through the air and crashing down into the comfort of his arms time and time again, knowing that he'll never leave you, nor forsake you, nor harm you. And even when it's scary, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23, he's right there with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort me, right? That's life. It is wonderful, but you gotta, you got to step to experience the reality to go out and proclaim the wonderfulness of it. Too often we've relegated sharing our faith to just sharing facts. It's not just facts. We're going out to tell people about the God who is, who wants to live in a relationship with them. But we got to rope it so we can do it. Repent, obey, proclaim, and that E, enjoy. Because there is nothing more wonderful than seeing someone else's eyes open to the truth and come to believe in the God who is and take those daily steps and delight like Charlie. It doesn't mean you laugh and giggle through life. Oh, my mom died. No, it means you cry. One day every tear will be wiped away, but you know it's not hopeless. You see what I'm saying there? You can fly through the air, flailing your arms, knowing that God will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the hope. That is a certainty. That is the joy that we have that allows us to lift over the circumstances and see beyond, to get a perspective from God because we know God. So I'll ask you these three questions one more time. How does your city affect you? Chew on that. Where are, you, where are you, I ask myself, being affected by your city, by where you live, by where you work, by your neighborhood, by your town, by, by the people in your life, your, your friends, right? Friends, relatives, where are they affecting you? How are you affecting them? Not to conform them to what you want them to be. That's not what I'm talking about. We're not, we're not to be manipulators of people to make them what we want. But how are you affecting those people? And how well do you understand the message? How well do you understand what grace is? Are you able to have a healthy understanding of the sadness of sin so that you can rejoice in the delight of grace? And then rope it up. Repent. Obey. Proclaim and enjoy. That's how Paul lived. That's how you and I are called to live. And that is how cities around the world have been affected by thousands of years so that people don't live in a hopeless, helpless, and hapless state, but they live with an eternal joy. Let's pray.
Father, I, I pray that we would all more fully come to understand grace. I pray that we would all come to truly know you, not about you, but to know you. And I pray we would be people who would walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've entrusted to us, that in no area of our life would we be hypocritical, though we all know we are in many ways. And we pray your forgiveness for it. But I pray that we would, we would live a life of trust and obedience, where we would see the world as you see it, or as you desire for us to see it, so that we can enjoy the stuff, so that we can enjoy the beauty of architecture. You, you have a creative nature, God, and that's part of what we have as your image bearers, is the, the ability to, to create things. You create from nothing. We just, we just put things together that you've made, but we make beautiful buildings and beautiful music and, and come up with wonderful plays and, and creations on our part, and I pray that we would enjoy those appropriately, but in all ways, always focus on you and understand who the people are doing these things, not vessels to be manipulated for our enjoyment, but people dearly loved by you. I pray we would go through this world enjoying it in a manner that, in the way that you call us to, but truly loving people, seeing people for who they are, beings created in your image, the pinnacle of your creation, Father, people that you created because you desire to live in an eternal relationship with them. And I pray that we would go out and tell them the truth that we live by, that you are not far away, that you are in fact very close, and that you've made a way so that people can turn to you and be forgiven and to live in a relationship with you forever. I pray that you give us boldness and courage to do that, but that we always do it in love, that we don't see people as dirty or rotten and disgusting, but we see them exactly the same as we are, the only difference being grace, and that we will be properly humbled by that and understand that we are not a uniquely special person who's more important to you than anyone else, but you love all people, that there is an incredible joy and uniqueness to the relationship of the person forgiven by Christ with you, but that uniqueness is open to all this time who will come to turn to you and believe. God, I thank you for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us that you have made a way for us to, to know you, not with wishy-washy blind faith, but with, with assurance and certainty. I pray that we would come to know you better, and that we would trust and obey more fully, so that we could have the joy of abundant life that you desire for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's see if we get one song playing for you right today. <laughs>